Good afternoon, and welcome to the A Seminar Series for uh, September. Uh, we, we're happy to see everybody here for the first uh, seminar for this, uh, this program here. Uh, today, Mary Margaret Andrews and Pat Gotland are going to be presenting um, on uh, the uh, New Hampshire Care Engagement Pilot Project. Uh, so, um, for people who are doing nursing credits, you have to participate in 80% of the program to receive credit. Uh, Brian Marsh. Uh, is a member of the planning committee and he's a consultant from Gilead Biosciences. Uh, and Mary Margaret Andrews, our speaker, is a consultant for Forest. No, my husband is, sorry. Oh, okay. Her husband is. She has no conflict then. Okay, that was interesting. Great. Um, and no other planning committee members uh, have a conflict of interest. Um, you need to uh, complete your evaluation form. Uh, to get credit and turn this in at the end of the session. And we have, this is our new funding funding period, uh, a three-year period. And unfortunately, our the agency that supports this, HRSA, uh, has changed the uh, participant information form. So you have a new form, there's new questions on that, and that's linked directly to our funding. So I, I have no control over that, but you have to have to release that and turn it into patties. Can I just say something really quickly? Because sure. even if you don't want credit, I still need an evaluation from you. Yeah. Every Thank you. Yeah. So everybody in the room is <laughs> Okay. Thanks very much. Hello. So we're pleased to be here today to talk about a project that we undertook with the uh, New Hampshire Department of Health and Human, Says, Human Services, excuse me, Bureau of Infectious Disease Control. And in addition to Pat and myself, our other uh, presenter today, who's from New Hampshire DHSS, who's joined us now is Rachel Cush, and we'll be introducing her again later. Uh, we're here to talk about a care re-engagement pilot that we did over the last year and a half. And uh, I feel a little guilty being the presenter because I personally, other than involved in putting together the grant application, I did not do any of the work of this pilot. But I'll begin the discussion, summarize sort of where we thought we were going to go with it, and then turn over the uh, presentation to Rachel for a while to talk about the actual work of the project and the pilot results, and then uh, Pat will lead a discussion in the uh, last part of our time together about uh, the implications and next steps. I'm going to go over some of the background, as we mentioned, including Cascade, and uh, this is our outline. I think I just said that. So for the last several years, there's been uh, really a paradigm shift in uh, how we deliver HIV care. This has been re-emphasized in the National HIV AIDS Strategy, as well as all the grant guidance coming out of CDC and HRSA. And our general strategy at this point in time, in order to optimize individual and community level care and outcomes for HIV, is to diagnose HIV early, to link 
people as soon as possible to HIV care, to engage and retain them in HIV care, to um, enhance antiretroviral adherence and viral suppression, and obviously along the way, oh by the way, which always unfortunately seems to come last, prevent HIV transmission, which is intimately entwined in all of this uh, cascade. This continuum of engagement in care is not a linear process. And for those of you who do this work, you know that when we give these talks, we talk about uh, people who are unaware of their status, and then they learn their status, and then they get into care, and then they get into regular care, and then they have a viral suppression. But this is obviously not so linear all the time. People move in and out of care, they come and go, and we have to catch them wherever they are in the HIV continuum. And it turns out that this is really a science into and of itself, and one that is not necessarily the focus of the HIV care provider's work. It may be uh, more specialized work done outside of HIV care settings. It's very important work, though, at this point in time, because we know we have some improvement to do with our overall HIV care continuum in the United States. Of the people who are diagnosed at this point in time, the, uh, only 86% are, are thought to have uh, received an HIV diagnosis of the positive people living with HIV. And then only a smaller proportion of those individuals, less than 50%, are actually engaged in care. And we'll go over the definitions of what does engage in care mean. And of that group of people who are engaged in care, uh, the majority are prescribed antiretrovirals at this point in time, which is in keeping with the uh, rec current recommendations for antiretroviral use for people, even with, for people with high CD4 cell counts. And uh, only a portion, two-thirds or so, of the people who are engaged in care actually have viral suppression. So if this was the best we could do, this would not be good enough to reach an AIDS-free generation or an AIDS-free community in the United States. And we know that along the way, each point on this continuum, there's work to do. What are the predictors for poor linkage and retention in care? There are a lot of studies about this point, uh, at this point, and I've just summarized a few things. One is that younger age appears to be a fair uh, reason why people don't get into care. Maybe it's the feeling of, it's uh, uh, on the tip of my tongue, I'm sorry. Thank you, yes, you know, people feel there's no way that they can get sick from HIV. They're young, they're not vulnerable, and this is not something that they need to deal with now. So younger age comes up again and again in studies. Female sex comes up, and this is something we've certainly observed within our own patient population, and uh, people have blamed it on a lot of things. Uh, maybe the fact that women often prioritize the care of their children and their families over their own health care. Um, there are probably lots of reasons, but this is something that is seen in multiple studies. Being a minority predicts poor linkage and retention in care, as does having public insurance or being uninsured being a rural resident for the reasons that are obvious to those of us who live in rural areas. It's hard to get to appointments and there's not as much latitude or flexibility in clinical systems as there might need to be. Drug and alcohol dependence 
comes up in every study, and I think uh, we tend maybe to blame a disproportionate number of the problems on this, but this is certainly an important factor. People who have less social support or people who don't engage in care management, so this would be our group of patients whose families don't know they have HIV, for example, or for people who don't work with an aid service organization and don't have a community case manager. Also, poor adherence and CD4s lower than 100 viral loads uh, correlate, and a history of visit cancellations or no-shows. And there actually are some prediction tools, one validated at the MGH and um, Brigham uh, and Women's Clinic with the reference cited here, uh, helping you to identify which are the patients who might be least likely to be retained in care. Now, we usually focus on the structural barriers for uh, being out of care. I, as providers, I think the things that come to mind in our case meetings often are finances and transportation, family care, other limitations like substance use, as I mentioned. But when you survey patients, actually the emotional barriers are uh, even more prevalent sometimes. And this may be, uh, early, especially early on, if they are not well educated about HIV, fear of the HIV medication side effects, uh, fear of people knowing, and stigma in general come up in all the surveys. So overcoming that, those barriers has to be a big part of trying to engage people in care and keep them in care. There is a lot of emerging data about the poor outcomes that happen when you don't engage people in care. And this cascade of delayed treatment, urologic resistance and failure, increased hospitalizations, and increased mortality rates, there wasn't data for each of these things uh, early on as people started to study this cascade of care and this continuum of care. But these days, there, there really is firm data from multiple studies, not cited here, um, that when you don't engage people, things don't go well. And that makes sense, but why is it important to prove it then? Well, I think it gets back to that idea that I was mentioning earlier, that this really is a science. It's something that we thought should be intuitive. Like, why don't people come in care and why don't they stay in here? But, in fact, the more people work with this population, the more they realize that there are a lot of things we don't understand. And there's a lot of money coming into this part of the HIV care, care cascade to really try to be better at bringing people into care and keeping them in care. So moving on to New Hampshire, we have had a system of HIV surveillance uh, and including uh, confidential name-based reporting since January of 2005. And uh, there is a process by which the people in the uh, Department of Health and Human Services should know who's living with HIV in the state. That is the reason that should work is that uh, HIV test results are reportable from labs or providers. CD4 cell counts are reportable, viral loads are reportable, and infant exposure is also now reportable. And there is uh, one person in particular, Aaron Metcalf at the state, who works with this data, sifts through the approximately 13,000 uh, lab-related uh, reports per year, and is responsible for trying to create, create the uh, 
New Hampshire Cascade. If I refer to EHARS, that's the national database that the New Hampshire data is reported to. So each state has a protocol for doing this. And in some states, um, the process by which you gather the data is different. And some states have better and um, worse areas or weaknesses in their data. So in New Hampshire, part of um, uh, what became obvious as the state started to plot out their cascade data was that there were some areas that looked different than the national cascade and that there were some areas that intuitively the state thought these are places we need to look into further and understand better. And one of those was this difference. Um, let me read the bottom line here, these uh, descriptors for you in case you can't see them because it's small. So the first bar is the diagnosed and in-care uh, bar. The second bar is the diagnosed and ever-linked bar. The third bar is the link to care, the in-care cohort, meaning that they had had at least one lab done, this is their definition for this cascade, um, in that third bar. The retain and care group, the fourth bar, was the in-care cohort who had had at least two CD4s or viral loads um, in that calendar year, separated by at least three months. And the suppressed in-care cohort um, had an undetectable viral load for the most recent viral load. So the state of New Hampshire has been working for um, a number of years, really, on trying to uh, create this cascade. Uh, when the national cascade was first available, the um, state cascade wasn't available at first, and then they really scrambled to try to pull together the data. And um, they were, at this point, um, it, for the data that ended in 2012 and went out into people getting clinical labs in calendar year 13, they were developing a confidence that this data was, uh, was correct. But what it did identify was this big gap here between the people who had been diagnosed and ever linked and the people who appeared to actively be linked to care in calendar year 13. And you see there was a group of over uh, 300 patients in this, um, in this cohort who potentially had not been in care. So the state began a process of trying to um, look at this group of people and understand it better. The other driver that they were aware of in, in data that I'm not showing you is about uh, what's called the high concurrent HIV AIDS diagnosis rate meaning for people who were being diagnosed with HIV in the state of New Hampshire, which was approximately 50 patients per year, um, uh, at least half of them almost were diagnosed, not just HIV positive, but with AIDS, a low CD4 cell count, or an opportunistic infection within one year of diagnosis, which is a marker of how well you're doing with uh, preemptively bringing people into care before they get sick. So the state was working on something called the New, Ham New Hampshire Care Engagement Program. And as it turns out, as Rachel can tell you more, this, turned to, this was not very easy to do. Uh, it really took a lot of planning. One of the reasons was it was cross-bureau collaboration between surveillance and prevention and the care program. We think of them all as state programs, but they actually are uh, not all physically located in the same place, and they're all not in the, within the same uh, administrative infrastructure. And ultimately, once uh, Lars Arneson, who's uh, moved on from his 
position, um, developed a, a program with the help of um, uh, Kirsten Jersey and others in the um, prevention um, in the Bureau of Infectious Disease Control branch. They needed to have it reviewed by the uh, their higher ups at the Department of Health and Human Services, Public Health Services. And specifically, I think the, the areas that were controversial were the ones about the, what they were going to do about data confidentiality, how they were going to protect the patient data. And then also, it sounded like there was a lot of controversy over the use of incentives um, to bring patients into care, which is something that we have had a lot of controversy about also, too. But ultimately, they were able to, uh, in the beginning stages of developing a program that was designed to increase the number of newly diagnosed HIV-positive individuals who were linked to HIV care and to decrease the number of people living in HIV who weren't accessing medical care. Right around that same point in time, uh, our funder, HRSA, uh, put out a supplemental guidance for uh, Part D programs that focus on women, infants, youth, and children. And we applied for money to collaborate with the state um, using this women, infant, children population as the pilot uh, population. And this was basically a novel cross-program prevention and data sharing process. Um, the state had the name identified aware and out of care data and um, that they shared between the surveillance and care programs. And as I mentioned a minute ago, that was a new process for them. They weren't routinely always doing that. Then the prevention staff would uh, cross-check essentially the subset of uh, our patients and with the Dartmouth-Hitchcock program and say, are you or are you not taking care of this person who was at one time your patient? Mind you, they could only do that for a subgroup of patients. That wasn't all the women, infants, youth, and children in the state. That was only the ones who had ever been our patients in the past for reasons of confidentiality. And then the prevention staff could uh, work on engaging this aware and out of care patient population. Um, and our outputs were going to be looking again at some of the continuum of care measures. Uh, There's an assessment forum when you bring people in. They were planned to do um, key informant interviews and then also planned to do some regional presentations, of which I guess we'll be able to count this as one. Uh, related to this process of trying to bring people into care. Sorry this isn't clear, but this is a, a graph basically uh, showing the population, population that we decided to work on was this small group of people here, this difference, oops, this difference here between the 289 people. Can you see my mouse? <laughs> okay, never mind. So in the, uh, this is a graphic of the, the, the cascade of care and broken down by uh, those who are women, infants, children, and youth versus not and total in the third column. And then of the women, infant, children, and youth, uh, we knew that there were 289 who were diagnosed and never in care. And um, this is somewhere between approximately uh, 20 to 25 percent of the total people living with HIV in New Hampshire are women, infant, children, or youth. And that uh, uh, of those groups, we knew that uh, only 
207 had had at least one lab in 2013, and 177 uh, were considered uh, the totally in care cohort, more than two labs, or a viral load at least three months apart. So that was the group of names that they started with. And I'll just make uh, one comment about care engagement from the HIV provider perspective, and then I'm going to hand it over to Rachel. Um, what I learned, what we learned through this, is that this is really specialized work, and it takes a delicate touch. It's uh, a process to frequently try to reach out to someone. Um, their caseloads are small, so if you're looking at a list of 80 people we were working through, it might have only been five on Lars' active list that we started to work with. And sometimes uh, you negotiate up to 90 days with that client to try to bring them into care, multiple attempts that you'll hear more about. And this process um, is, um, again, specialized work. So with that, I think I'll turn it over to Rachel and she can tell you more about the, the process itself and then we'll also give the um, results of our Oops, let me go back, switch slide sets here. Great, thank you. Use this mouse, okay. And that mic, there you go. <laughs> Hi. Um, so, yeah, let me just walk you through. I'm, I'm an infectious disease care specialist. I was hired to do specifically this project, this care engagement project. Um, uh, that was started with high hopes many years before I was hired, and finally they got you know a position. Um, Lars was the one who started it. it he was previously basically in my position. He's gone now. So, um, but I kind of I started right when we were starting with this list of women, infants, and children. So I got to be there right at the beginning. Um, so let's see. I don't know how to switch slides. You said to use this mouse, but click on that one. Okay, so it wasn't. Oh, it's not charged. It's not showing. It looks like it's projecting. So just to Okay, here we go. It's, it's sort of delayed, I guess. Um, so one of the ways we talk about it is um, as data to care, which is kind of a nice way to talk about it um, because it starts off in the, the state's Department of Public Health house. It starts off as we get lab slips. We have data. And um, that woman, Erin, who Dr. Andrews was talking about, um, does all this uh, compiling of this very large amount of data uh, reporting the, the positives and the lab work for HIV. Um, she then generates these reports. She, um, and then we go through them and sort them for who we're gonna prioritize. So the first list of people we prioritize were the women, infants, and children. Um, and then we do the part where we're trying to locate these individuals who've been lost to care, and then number four, meet with them and do this process that um, Dr. Andrews described. And then actually, you know, ideally we get to five and um, these patients are re-engaged in care 
or engaged for the first time. Um, so let's see if I can make it go to the next one. <clears throat> Maybe, hang on, maybe we can do it like this. It's just not showing us yet. Okay, so it's up there. Okay, I can just do it there. It's gonna... It should advance, though, on the... Pulling down the slides from somewhere else, or are they on the machine? No, they're on the machine, and it's just not synced or something. No. Um, so I can just I can talk about it. It's not really really. I'm talking about it within this one through five, so um, it's not a huge problem. I only have like six more slides. Um, so the first thing that we were doing was. Um, I think Dr. Andrews kind of talked about that. The, the locating is the, the part that what Dr. Andrews is talking about is really delicate work. Um, the locating and the meeting with them. The lo it turns out the locating in our first list, as we'll show you when we show you the results, um, was absolutely the hardest part with our first list, was actually locating these individuals. Some of them, um, it was if they had at one point been seen at Dartmouth, they were a lot easier to locate. Um, but people who were diagnosed initially, um, just like at a STD clinic or in prison, were people who kind of just dropped off of the radar and were harder to find, and that was um, distressing. Um, and then, um, so in our, I would just advance it here to talk, and then we'll yeah. see if they can do it. Okay. That's fine. Sorry. Right, no, that's fine. Um, so there was a lot of, so when I started, we had this list of 81. It was 82, I think, but it turned out one was a, um, a double. There were lots of, the data is so funny that way. Like, you can have this list of, we have a list of, I think right now, 400-something names for the state. This is the total list of people who are not, for some reason, it looks like they don't, they're not in care. Um, but when you end up really digging into that and looking even further, it turns out that a lot of the names are, it's two people listed, one person listed twice, or with an alias, or someone who changed their last name because they got married, or, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who are in care who we think are out of care. So that's a, that's a good part. Um, but, but we had to do a lot of kind of gum chewing, and uh, that we did a lot of field visits and um, to addresses that didn't exist, to addresses where I never heard of that person, um, people who, it, it's not clear actually why, but um, people for whom the addresses were so old or just weren't accurate to begin with. Someone who came in and got a test and was like, oh, you need all this information just for me to get an HIV test. I'm not going to give you the right information. Um, and that, if, but that's just a guess. We don't, we couldn't find um, quite a few people. Let's see if we can get this. Oh, yeah. Let me just. Um, Wait, what, sorry, sorry. Sort of take your mouse and put it in, you're in presenter view. So oh, I know, hold on one second, I just lost her. Is that your, um, it's, yeah, that's fine. So, um, uh, no. it was, this wasn't synced, see how this isn't synced? 
That's when it happened. She was in her presentation and it was showing one thing on the big screen and a different thing on the computer. Okay, so this is... It wouldn't change. Okay. Assessment engagements. Oh, there it's given. It's still it's the same with this one, hasn't it? So are you changing it? Yeah, I'm changing. Okay, great. I'll do it that way. Okay. That's perfect. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this was um, brainstorming why our list of why we thought people might have dropped out of care. Um, this includes um, almost all of the ones from New York State. New York State is a really robust program right now. Um, they're doing great with this. Um, and I had a really nice training in New York where I got to see, I got to um, shadow a nurse who does these this re-engagement stuff. And, and she does it a little bit differently than we had been planning to do it. And it was really good to see. Um, so this was the results. We had 81 individuals at the start, um, women and children. Um, children, everything was 25 and under. Um, 37 were found to be living outside of New Hampshire. Um, and we didn't know that. And we don't really have a lot of way to learn that. You know, we, um, talking to, to providers um, and finding this information out a lot of times they say, oh yeah, we knew that they were moving to Connecticut, but um, we should have told you actually, now that I think about it, because it looks like we, these are 37 people, it looks like we're not taking good care of, but it turns out they don't even live here, so it's, um, 14 were found to be in care, and for whatever reason, um, to me that's a big question, why, um, why were they in care, but it didn't look like they were in care, sometimes that's a name issue, sometimes that's a data lag, like um, when you're compiling data, you always are using data from months or even like up to a year beforehand. Um, three were found to be deceased. We do a uh, death match with the list once a year, but that's just once a year. Um, and one was found to be negative, which was the most interesting one. Um, someone had used someone's name and address and um, date of birth. I mean, everything was right, but it was negative. Um, and got retested because she got really nervous when she got our knock on the door. Um, <laughs> like, and we knew everything about her because we had it all on these, these laps, and, um, but she was negative. Um, so, so that was interesting. Um, she had actually worked in the field, so the guess was that someone just knew her well enough to, I don't know, use her name, but um, 26 of the people we could not locate. Um, so what this means is as far as um, this care engagement program, none of the people, none of these 81 people were enrolled in the care engagement program because we couldn't, the 26 people who probably needed to be were these people who we couldn't find. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for why we couldn't find them. One, old data, one, um, a lot of them were tested in, a lot of the women were tested as they went into prison and um, just, we, there, it, there is not a good kind of continuity of care linkage between when someone leaves prison and then goes out to be getting their care on their own. Um, it seems like that. Also, uh, there were a lot of people were um, diagnosed as uh, while they were actively intravenous drug users or drug addicts and may have 
um, just been enough living in the margins that they're to you know you're not going to Google search someone who who doesn't have a home um, and find them or they don't have their Facebook page or whatever. I mean, it's so we have to to try to find people who are living um, kind of in the margins is. Um, more, it's really important and it's a lot harder. So we're trying to get a, um, this search engine that, that police, um, police officers use. Uh, we may be able to get that, which would be great. Um, and that would help. Um, so the things that we've learned so far um, is that we need to improve surveillance. We don't always get the labs. We don't, we just don't get them all the time. Um, and it's not always the same labs that are, you know, there are some labs that are consistently awesome and some that are consistently a little spotty but even the awesome labs there's you know there's there are human beings between the the actual lab work and when it arrives at Erin's desk and she enters it in um, and and so mistakes are going to happen but it, it would be nice to see a little more redundancy with that so that when mistakes happen they get noticed more easily um, the, we need better location methods um, to find people. Um, it seems to me, that this is just my own guess, that those 26 people we couldn't find, that, that they didn't use their real names, and that, so we'll, we won't find them. Um, and that, so um, we don't do anonymous testing, I mean, people can do their, their own testing at home. Um, I don't, I don't know what it says about that, but if there was just, um, obviously the stigma is such a huge issue that, um, that that, I think it really persists, really persists. Um, and then I, I really think we need an improved linkage with the prison system. Um, it, it's, there's a lot of kind of silos. There's the women's federal, the women's state prison, there's the men's state prison. They work very separately from each other. There's, um, there's a federal prison in Berlin, there's, um, and then there's county prisons, county jails in each county. So that's a lot of different silos. They do not work, have the same systems for transitioning people out, and I'm guessing some are better than others, but that's, um, for me, I think, just individually in my position, if I want to do this work well, I have to um, work on that. So, um, so, I think that that's... That's really mostly it anyway. Okay. Yeah. Great. So I think um, we're going to try to, with Rachel's help and Pat's help, uh, debrief about the implications of this project, which on the surface, as you see, was a very basic project, very basic. But the systems weren't in place to get you know the results we needed. And then there were data quality issues and um, lots of other things that were revealed that were not so obvious before. And one of the main things that I think is um, pretty clear is that we just were not this, was not, this was data that was not being exchanged before in our state. And um, This is where it's not sinking again. Isn't that funny? It's weird. 
What did he do? He wiggle or something? What's on the laptop is not much showing on the screen, and there the two shall. Uh... Can you clarify the 26? So for what period of time? Is that just in one year? 2013? They were tested in 2013? No, no, no. These were people who, who were, um, as of 2013, so it could have been were 10? out of care. Some of them, I mean, there were a couple of dates that were like 95. So this goes way back. Way, way back. Uh, because it's the first time we ever did it, the first list, unmet name list, they call it, was um, included data from 20 plus years. Um, years ago. So, but what's nice about that is that so now, subsequently, every time they do a list, we're much clearer on when those people fell out of care because it was between the last list and the new list. Um, and so, right now, the list I'm working with, I'm only working with people who were just out of care. Um, some of them. Like a couple months, you know, missed one appointment. Or, um, I don't know what you're going to try it that way. Um, um, go for it. Just to okay. see if yeah. we can reengage yeah. some people. Thank you. Because <laughs> I'm not a detective. I, I don't know. I just okay. I went down and I clicked on the what you would usually do to put it. Yeah. And okay, we won't touch it. Sorry. No. Thanks. Rachel, yeah. to get on this list, you had to be a ruling, a child, or someone under 25 years of age, and you had to have, you had to receive a lab test. At some point, either a lab, lab test or just one positive test. And of those 81, only 14 were identified as being currently in care. Currently in care, yep. Yeah. Um, in New Hampshire, and living in New Hampshire and in care. And so it was 30 something that were. Get to it, but is there kind of breakdown of the characteristics of those 81? Were they all women? Were they, they were all, oh, of the ones who were in care versus not? No, that's a really, that's a really good idea to do that. Um, I, I came in after the ones who had been in care were already found. So with the list that I was Someone working with were all the ones who were. So probably you can't even put information. Yeah, right. It's, and that's, uh, it, it's interesting trying to justify why we need this um, kind of like detective software when part, part of me is saying, I went to enough addresses that didn't exist, that that these people, like literally didn't exist, like there isn't a number 20, but it, like this just, people just put, put down an address or a name hey, that wasn't there. Just to jump in, the camp, those numbers seem like, maybe we're doing a really good job of keeping people in care. I mean, if, if, if of your population of 81, half of them are in the state, so we just don't know about movement in this country. And of the remaining half, some percentage of them have sort of data reasons that they're 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 not mm -hmm. in care. I mean, if you take that twenty whatever your final number out of the total, I, I don't know. Maybe, well, it, there's it, always going to be some number of people, as you're saying, in an environment where we have this weird thing about testing and the anonymity. There's always going to be some some bad results and. Your point is well taken that the prison stuff is totally not coordinated. Right. Like, it seems like you're, we have to allow some margin of. Right. What's that? Yeah. Margin? I think what is I, that margin? What's, yeah. What's the margin? Level of, of, uh, kind of, yeah. So this is the revised continuum, and and you see that you know this 831 number is higher than it was. So this 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 distance is shrinking here just with this little pilot project, but there's the same amount of work to be done on the male population, 
And I think where everybody feels New Hampshire really is succeeding compared to some of the national situations is the between bar three here and the fifth bar, and the total number of people who are suppressed. Yeah, it's not just it's a linked and retained. So the people who are retained in care have a very high rate of viral suppression, which is excellent. Um, and the difference between the, uh, the bar four and the bar five may have to do with a lab reporting issue because it's got the undetectable viral So, so that's where I was going to ask. Do yeah. you sense how comprehensive and rigorous the lab reporting to your office is? I'm new enough that I, I, I don't. I can't say with confidence that it's excellent. I can't. I, can't. I, I don't know. Um, it, you know, it occurs to me that there's, um, it, for whatever reason, it's hard for different arms of the state to talk to each other, um, and mostly it's because everyone's so busy, because everyone is understaffed and unfunded, um, but it, it seems like there's some real opportunities, even just to do like this kind of like, you know, bring a show like the, the little dog and pony show around at lunch to the blast in the state and say, hey, look, like we're doing this, look how important it is that we get this data. like. You know, being, you know, not forgetting to access a lab result is can can be really profound. Um, it can. If we have a small state; the numbers would change. Yes. So, following up what Peter said, it's also quite possible that twenty or so tested under a fictitious name and address, and then later came mm -hmm. and got, you know, saw a real doc and our hundreds, and they yes. might be part of the. We found one of those people. Actually, Leslie O'Neill found one of those people. Um, she said, "You know, you have this name, but I have this name, and and I remember, like that's this is just a, um, he used an alias originally, mm -hmm. and and he is really in care, like really in care, um, and he's been on this list, and we couldn't find him because he didn't exist, and uh, and like what a triumph! But the, but that's he's not the only person who did that, right? Do you get any reports of care diagnostic testing? Um, do, what do you mean? The, the ones where people, that's the, where you can do it like by yourself? Yeah, no. Not. Or it's done in the The clinics, um, the ones that are contracted with the state are really good about reporting. Um, I, I don't have a sense of the ones that aren't. So, um, but like Manchester Health Department, National Health Department, and um, Joan G. Lovering and uh, Portsmouth are Greenland um, they're great about reporting, partly because it's linked to their funding. But um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't have sense, and and just knowing um, that there's always a person involved. There's always an individual. They might not know they're supposed to. Like sometimes I'll call and say, "Hey, I got this gonorrhea report." You know, um, oh, I needed to tell you that about that. I need, and it's not because people are slacking off. It's, it's a knowledge thing. Yes. So how in states that truly do have anonymous testing and anonymous reporting, could you ever do a study like this to go back and find people in or out of care? I mean, you can't. All right. So in that case, when the initial HIV testing program came in and New Hampshire decided um, not to go anonymous-based, the state for themselves created this conundrum because people wanted to remain, I mean, what you said, the stigma is so important. Right. We want it to remain anonymous. And 
anonymity means you don't want to be found again. So in some chunk of people, that's true. And we don't know how big that chunk is. Um, but what I'm hoping is for the next cohort, like I said, I'm going to pick, I, I'm only going with people who have been, have been out of care um, recently. So um, my guess is those people will be more easy to find. And, um, and then I'll be able to have some conversations and get some information about what, um, because I don't, I don't know, those 26 people, they could be, I, I don't know, maybe 20 of them gave a false name. Maybe only six did, but maybe 20 of them were, you know, homeless and tested at a clinic and, um, and never didn't have a, any sort of, like, resources that they could follow up or didn't, and didn't know their resources. And I'm in a fun position right now because now I'm also the person who gets the new HIV diagnoses. Um, and as Betsy and I talked about, um, it puts me in a really nice position because I can really, like, kind of make sure people understand how big a nice net there is in New Hampshire to, like, get care and keep care. Um, but I don't get the reports from the people who did it by themselves at home or did it with, you know, the false name people. Um, the, I, you know, those I call the phone number, and there's no such phone number. It doesn't happen that much right. now. Going forward, I can see that you take the steps, and part of that, what Mary Margaret said, was the the hand-holding phase mm -hmm. of the diagnosis. Once you're putting those people in care, this problem will go away. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it that way. It makes me feel like I I have work to do, and that it's possible. So. It's nice to All right, so now we'll talk a little bit about what we think are the next steps. And Rachel, um, feel free to feel free to chime in because um, because what we know now. I mean, we were integral to getting this part of the project off the ground, but um, from here on in, it will be. Owned and <laughs> and driven by by the by the state of New Hampshire and um, and however Dartmouth Hitchcock will always be a part of it if only because we're the largest provider of HIV care in the state so um, the largest numbers will you know or or the biggest resource for filling in their blanks will come from us more than likely. So, let's see if this will work. Um, so, well, Mary Margaret just showed us the revised care continuum, and that will keep going on because the CDC has, I just came from a conference where virtually every, probably more than half of the presentations there, somebody was talking about the care continuum. Every state is doing it. The CDC has really asked their prevention grantees to, to do a care continuum for their state. So this will be a work in progress. Um, and we'll get uh, revised ones every year, I would think, or every other year. Um, one of the things we had proposed to do in our, um, in our second year, if we got sec um, a second year of funding, which we, we didn't, um, was to do key informant interviews with patients who um, sometime who have come into our program in the last couple of years, so say 2013 through 15, who may have come into care more than 50 days 
uh, more than 90 days, I'm sorry, after their um, diagnosis, or those who have come into care with a concurrent diagnosis, and to talk with them about um, why, you know, what were the barriers to their getting to, into care sooner or thinking about getting tested sooner. Um, and so um, we'd still, it's still a worthwhile project to do. It would be um, a, a good uh, way to identify those barriers um, so that we can share that information with the state, with other, um, with our ASO partners, with anybody who can make use of that information and try to get people into care earlier. So, um, so we will still try to, to do that, if only on a, a limited uh, basis. Um, and as was alluded to, um, to explore and improve the prison linkages, whatever part we can play in that, um, you know, we, can, we will try to do that. Um, expanding beyond just Part D. So um, we all know, uh, those of us who work in the HIV program, that um, most of our patients are not Part D patients. Um, more than uh, about 40% of our patients are Part D patients, and 60% are um, men. Um, and primarily men who have sex with men. So um, we need to expand and start looking at them. And as um, Rachel said, that that's the next thing on her agenda. And uh, so ho hopefully that will shrink once we can concentrate on, on that particular population. We'll uh, be able to raise that third bar even more. Um, and another resource, particularly for that um, expansion, would be talking with ASOs, not just providers, but ASOs um, may know where some of their um, people have moved to or um, whether they're in care but somewhere else other than where we thought. So that's another um, resource, I think, that can be tapped or we thought could be tapped. Um, The, the, so, um, Mary Margaret and I had a discussion about this this morning. Expanding from aware and in care to um, fully engaged in care, co to the fully engaged in care cohort, there are some limits or constraints provided by the definition of who's in care um, that we go by as providers, um, which is how, more often than not, when was the last time you saw your doctor? And that the definition that is used um, from the um, care prevention side at, at the state level, which is how long is it since you had a lab result, it doesn't reflect because that's their definition. And the reason they can use that is because in the funders world, in the funding world, um, visits are the same, or I want lab, um, labs are the same as visits. So it, that's why you end up with sort of um, a mismatch, if you will, of who's in care. Um, so if we have a patient, so that means if we have a patient who comes in for their labs every six months but doesn't see the doctor for 15 months, 
then to the state, they're in care. To us, they're definitely not. Um, and somehow, some better communication will will uh, will work at that level. Um, and let's see, getting to the end here. Data agreements, contracts, confidentiality. Mary Margaret alluded to this that um, that early early why why so some of us may be thinking some of you may be thinking why haven't we done this all along why didn't we just ask people these back and forth with the state but there have always been concerns about confidentiality and who who can the state talk to about um, patients and and then um, and and so we we went round and we would go round and round with this but um, I don't think any of us ever really tried, either, at, either at, from our end or the state end, to sort of test that envelope, like actually go and talk to the, to the legal departments to find out, you know, how much could we share and how much information can we get back and forth. It's easier now because we have a state contract. So as a contractor, um, we the um, ability to to communicate with each other about individuals is a given with that contract, so that'll be easier. Um, and, but what I can tell you from one of the presentations I went to, there are states now that are doing like all of these, not just contracts, but data agreements between different, um, different sub-grantees or different parts or departments in the state so that so that they can um, do that, even absent contracts, um, and so that's that is a, a, another avenue to that can be explored. And um, outreach capacity and costs. So it does cost money to send people out into the field, um, whether it is um, staff members or even um, some places are using peer navigators that they bring in and train on how to do this sort of basic outreach to find people. And, you know, you still have to pay. Um, pay them for their time, pay them for their uh, transportation, um, and um, at whatever other expenses are involved. So that, uh, you know, whether we can absorb that within with uh, funds that we currently have or not, um, that remains to be seen. And, well, opportunities for consumer involvement. I just alluded to that with the uh, thought about peer navigators. Um, some states are using that, too. I learned that <laughs> at the conference. So um, so all of these things are, are not unique to New Hampshire, for sure. Um, some places are, are finding ways to um, get over these uh, some of these barriers, but... Um, but there, the, there's, as Rachel said, there's still work to be done, and uh, we'll keep keep on trying <laughs> to make it better. And I think is that it. Yeah. So it's a yeah. paradigm shift, really. I think you yeah. see, you know, this, this type of project, at least you get a the small things that weren't working. So it's been educational for, for all sure. of us. And yes. we're glad Rachel could join us in more detail. Tim has a question, and then Betsy, I think. Or and I think these data you found are really striking and um, <clears throat> thinking that each of the bars in the treatment cascade implies an intervention. If you realize that you 
if you realize that you were one of the states, Puerto uh, Rico would be an example where you have people in care, but your likelihood of having a suppressed family is quite low. You, you need a different intervention than if you have lots of people out of care. So this state is number one in the country for suppressed viral load. That's not our problem. But we looked pretty crappy when it comes to retention and care, and so you can imagine interventions we would do to do that. I think the incendiary finding you guys have is that that may be a false assumption that we can make. We really don't know what percentage of our patients are not retaining care. Maybe a nation is castigating itself for not retaining the care. And the thing we should really be upset about is we don't know where people are. <laughs> and so it's, it really is striking that a lot of this does come down to the administrative piece that you guys talked to. That, that we don't have sort of great sync up of databases. If this were the IRS, they would know where the people were. You know, we, we just don't exactly. And so, clearly, if we want to know where the money should go and where our efforts should go, we need to know how many people are actually not retaining care and how many people just need to have a checkbox next to their name because they changed their name and moved to Florida. So, that partly just takes elbow grease to kind of get the, the databases to sync up. But there is, as you said, um, a confidentiality question. You know, you, we kind of like the idea of allowing the people who are not ready to reveal their identities to have some quiet way of doing it. Um, but it would be great if they had a way of staying off the radar screen without screwing up the radar screen. <laughs> so I, I wonder if you have thoughts about, I guess there are two parts that boils into. Do you feel optimistic that we will be able to get quality data access? And do you think that there is a way for us to um, leave room for essentially anonymous testing, such as with home testing, in a way that doesn't require people to use anonymous? Um, so I'm, it may be also a, a function of me being new to working at the state, um, but I'm optimistic now that, that it just seems like if we keep highlighting, oh, look at this discrepancy here. We, you know, we have 400 people on the unmet need list, but me sitting at my cubicle and like making a couple of phone calls, like it's 270. You know, like that's like there's it's a lot smaller than it looks. Um, and so maybe we need a person sitting at my desk, you know, and that's going to help a little bit. But uh, and then the lab. Um, just reporting being better, and I think that that's just, it's a small state, it feels really possible. Like there's just, um, there's not that many providers who do the testing, or to do the, in these specific labs and specifically HIV testing, there's just not that many. Um, so, and ideally, Laura's position will be filled and then it will be me and one other person who is full time doing this, you know. Um, and then you, your part, B of your question was. Do you think home testing yeah. will make it yeah. so people can do this without? I, I mean, you guys probably know better than I do, really. Like, what, um, how, what, who do you see who have originally got tested at home and then eventually just were able to kind of come to grips with it and be more? Um, I, I don't, I don't know. What I, what would be great would be if the people, the labs that that process these anonymous tests could be, I understand there is a lot of 
they are not cooperative. No. Um, but that the, they at least just giving out numbers, not I, you know, people, but just hey, we need to know how many people are positive. Like, you, I mean, you, uh, how many? I mean, we ask how many patients do we take in? Do we get in every year who've been home tested? No, not a lot. I know. I know Nashua had a, had a cohort of them, about three or four of them, a couple of years ago. But they all came in and they all were said who they were, and they are who they said they are. So, so we're um, at the end of the hour here. Betsy had the, the second question, so let's take her. So we were talking earlier about the linkage with the prison. When you look at the numbers that feel un unresolved, what percentage of them do you feel like are related to the prison system? Off the top of my head, I'd say like a quarter. And that was with women. I think it, it, oh, it's a different, you can't say that that's would be the same if you're looking at women and men together. It's definitely, that's going to be different. Um, my gut would be that women would be more likely to be lost. Um, um, but I don't know. Like, the women who get tested in prison. Um, would be more likely to get something else, but that's different. And mind you, Dartmouth's practice a contract still with the prison, right? So, right, because it's not helping, right? It's not helping. It's that one will be an interesting one to get some legwork. Yeah. Thank you, folks. Thank you.